We're going to resume our series in the letter to the Ephesians. And just to remind you, this book contains in it what we call the grammar of the gospel. The grammar of the gospel is uh, clearly delineated in this book. What Paul does is he uses words, both grammar and vocabulary, to build the structure for the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Basically, what he does is he uses verbs in the first half of the book. It's almost divided perfectly in half. The first half of the book being in what is called the indicative uh, mood. In other words, Paul uh, uses words that tell us who we are. We're in the Beloved. We're in Him. We're seated in the heavenly places. We are adopted. We are beloved. All of these phrases tell you who you are. And then about... Chapter 3, about midway, uh, chapter 4 actually, he, he, split, he, he changes over to an imperative mood. In other words, he starts to tell you what to do, do these things. And so there's a very clear grammar uh, that is displayed. It's not accidental. Paul thought very deeply about this. In fact, he uses it in many of his other letters. And so uh, take your Bible, look at Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to read the first 10 verses, very familiar uh, verses for many of you, and see if you can start to pick up uh, what he's saying about who you are, uh, who God is, and uh, basically uh, what he wants uh, uh, the purpose of our lives together. So we'll start reading in uh, chapter 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you were once walking following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is God's Word. The the book of Ephesians was John Calvin's favorite book. And one of John Calvin's protégés, one of his students, the great Scottish uh, pastor and, and theologian, John Knox, who studied, went to Geneva and studied under John Calvin and is credited with being the father of Presbyterianism, 
uh, this same John Knox on his deathbed requested that the sermons of John Calvin on the book of Ephesians be read to him as he was dying. And so you can see that the theology and the ideology of John Calvin and people like John Knox and thankfully those of us who hold them as our forebears in the faith, uh, it has permeated our belief. And John Calvin, I think, so uh, in, imbibed the spirit of the Apostle Paul, particularly the book of Ephesians, to the extent that he wrote these famous words in the very first chapter, in the very first paragraph, in the very first part of his famous Institutes for the Christian Religion. See if you can pick it up based on what we just read. See if you can hear it. Calvin said this, Nearly all wisdom we possess, that is to say, true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts. The knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. What he's saying is that for you and I to understand wisdom, to understand the purpose of anything, our own lives and the lives of the, that are going around in the world around us, to understand anything about sound and true wisdom, you must know God and you must know yourself. Now he's not talking about knowledge of self. Listen carefully. He's not talking about knowledge of self in respect to as some sort of personal introspection or a psychological self-awareness. But he says this, you are to know your shaming nakedness, teeming uh, with infirmities. We are to know and embrace our ignorance, our vanity, our poverty, our infirmity or, or weakness, that the true light of wisdom and sound virtue, full abundance of every good and the purity of righteousness must rest in the Lord alone. He says, only then will we compel, be compelled to seek God. It's when we see this utter poverty in our souls that we have nothing to offer Him. And Calvin says, only when we are displeased with ourselves will we seek Him. That's the knowledge of self. It's our brokenness, our sin, our helplessness without Him. Then he talks about the knowledge of God. This is the second part. The knowledge of God shows how far we are from His glory, from His holiness. Listen, for we always seem to ourselves righteous and upright and wise and holy. That's how we look at ourselves. Oh, we always can self-justify. We can always find why it's somebody else's fault. This pride, Calvin says, is innate in all of us unless by clear proofs we stand convinced of our own unrighteousness, foulness. Don't you love these words? These are politically incorrect words, folks. Foulness, folly, impurity. Moreover, we are not thus convinced if we look merely to ourselves and not also to the Lord, 
who is the sole standard by which this judgment must be rendered. So Calvin summarizes what it is to know yourself and to know God like this. Know God, know yourself, know yourself to know your need of God, know God to know you are not God. Amen? Did you love that? Man. So this morning we're going to look at three things real quickly. Knowing ourselves. Secondly, knowing God. And finally, knowing God's uh, purpose for us and our purpose for ourselves. So uh, let's look at them very quickly. Knowing ourselves. Verse 1 through 3. Paul is saying, you can hear Calvin channeling the Apostle Paul. He's reaching back into Paul's theology and he's bringing it up and he's saying, here's what you need to know about yourself. Here's what you've got to know. Not only know, you have to face it. Not only face it, you have to embrace it. This is what is known about us. Look at verse 1. We're dead in sins and trespasses. We're dead in our sins and trespasses. The Bible uses a lot of metaphors for the condition of human beings. We're dead. We're sick. We're lost. We're blind. We're filled with disease. Our hearts are bent towards wickedness and evil. We are selfish. We are self-serving. And on and on we could go. This is our condition. Dead is just one of many words that the Bible uses to describe the condition of man. We are dead. Then he talks about our status and our standing. This is in verse 3. So our condition is dead. Our status and standing is we are children of wrath. In other words, if left to ourselves... The final state of humanity would be the wrath of God. Judgment would have to come on us because of our sin and our rebellion towards God. So our condition is dead. Our status and our standing is that we are children of wrath. And our destiny, look at verses 2 and 3. Our destiny is that we are following the course of this world. We are following the prince of the power of the air. This is a reference to Satan and his demonic uh, forces. We are following the passions of our flesh and the desires of our flesh. In other words, what Paul is saying is we are dead in our sins, we are children of wrath, and we are enslaved. We are slaves of this world of the prince of the power of this world. We're slaves to our passions, slaves to our desires. We are hopeless. We are lost. We have a, a condition in us that is of inability. St. Augustine called this, what he called it, is original sin. This is what every human being on the face of the earth, man, woman, and child, doesn't matter where you're born, doesn't matter what home you've been brought up in, just doesn't matter. Every one of us is facing this state of affairs. Humanity is born into slavery and sin apart from God's grace. We are static. 
We're stagnant. We're frozen. We cannot help ourselves. There is an inability in us to change who we are. Folks, every year at New Year, something like, I don't know, 70% of people make New Year's resolutions. And look, if you want to make New Year's resolutions, it's great. Go ahead and make them. But understand this, that a resolution is you deciding that you in your own willpower are going to do something or other to improve your life. Why do so many people do that? Because every one of us knows there's something wrong and we want to make changes. We want to, Some changes are huge. Some of them are, are mundane. Like, okay, I want to start my diet. You know, I'm going, to, I'm going to lose weight. I'm going to go back and exercise. I'm going to get up an hour early so I have time to pray and have some time in the Bible. I'm going to do, we make all kinds of resolutions because we want to change. No one I know, except some people that have something wrong with them, are totally and completely satisfied with everything about themselves. And if you're one of those people, please come see me. Because I can tell you in about five minutes, I can tell you a lot of things that are wrong with you. And you know they're there. We all know that. And we struggle with it. And we don't know how to change. And so there's all kinds. You can go into a bookstore. My goodness, folks. The bookstores are filled with self-help manuals. How to improve your life. And we often reduce our Christianity down to that. Here, do these ten things. Do these seven things. Here's how you have a better life. Here's how you have your best life now. And they become bestsellers because people are craving change. And the Gospel promises change, but it promises change in a different way. You have to know yourself. You have to know that this weakness is there, this sin is there. And then you have to know who God is. Look at these next few verses. I'm telling you, Calvin was thinking about this when he wrote that introduction to the Institutes. I have no doubt. I could be wrong, but I have no doubt. Look what he says in verse 4. But God. But God, being rich in mercy and great in love. But God. You know, I have, I have four commentaries that I'm using to help me in this series. Wonderful commentaries written by top-flight scholars, and all, every one of them, without an exception, say this. Listen, folks. That the two most important words in the Bible are but God. The most important words in your Bible are here in this verse. But God. You see, the state of affairs, how, what we were, is interrupted by this. But God, who is rich in mercy, there is a divine intervention into time and space. God does not leave us dead in our sins. He doesn't leave us children of wrath. He interrupts and intervenes. By what we call in theology the divine initiative. He breaks through what Dr. Bruce Waltke calls an eruption. Not eruption with an E. E-R-U-T-I-O-N. Eruption like a volcano. But an eruption. I-R-R-U-P-T-I-O-N. Eruption. 
a coming down into the cosmos, into the created order. And He does it over and over again most gloriously, most amazingly in the weakness and poverty of a manger on Christmas morning. In the life of the most frail and weak, an infant, He breaks in and intervenes. But God, being rich in mercy, this is who He is. Contrast that to who we were. And this is who He is. Rich in love. Rich in mercy. Rich in grace. While we were yet sinners, the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 5, you see, he, he's repeating himself here in Ephesians, or perhaps Romans, he was repeating Ephesians. We don't know, but it's Paul saying to you and I, listen folks, on your worst day, on the day when you were dead in your sins and trespasses, when you were a child of wrath, when you had no hope, when you were as far away from God as you could possibly be, when all of the sin and darkness and misery of our lives is just weighing us down, on that worst day, God commends His love to us. On that worst day, He is rich in mercy. On that worst day, You, without doing anything, for by grace you have been saved, he goes on to say, for by grace you have been saved without doing anything to earn it or merit this great love, he reaches down and he changes your condition, your status, and your destiny. He changes our condition, our status, And our destiny, out of pure grace, out of nothing but rich mercy, out of great love, the Apostle Paul says, though dead, look at verse 5, though dead, He makes us alive. Notice, He made us alive. We didn't make ourselves alive. He made us alive. He changes our condition. We were dead But now we are alive. Before we were the walking dead. We could not... In fact, it's hard to even imagine. I mean, I'm not dead. Look at me. I'm walking. But there's deadness in us. Sin in us. It leads us to death. And he says, no. He changes on that worst day of your life. He comes in and He makes you from death to life. Imagine that. He says He saves us. Now, Evangelical Christianity has has got some crazy. We've we've poured in all this stuff about saved, and if you're saved, what saved means is that you're going to heaven. But that's not how Paul would have seen it. Paul would have seen salvation as being everything in your life that was wrong, that was upside down, is now made right side up, so that now you can look at life completely different. Not. Not pie in the sky, heaven someday, uh, gold streets, harps, wings, all of those, those ideas that we have. What saved means, no. He's talking about right now you've been rescued. Right now you've been saved for a purpose. We'll look at that in a moment. Though dead, He made us alive. He changes our condition. He changes our status. 
and our standing. Look at this. Verse 6, we are raised with Him. We are seated with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Listen, folks. He takes you out of this world, so to speak. No, your body's still here. Your life is still lived here. But what He's saying to you, folks, is you are now a citizen of the heavenlies. You cannot be touched. You cannot be touched. What did Jesus tell us to do with our treasures? What were we supposed to do with our treasures? Here. Where were we to store our treasures? In heaven. We were to store our treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust corrupt, nor thieves do not break through and steal. That's where we are to take and place our treasures. Somewhere that they cannot be touched. Do you know what He does with you? You are His treasure. And where does He deposit that treasure? In the heavenlies. He takes you and all that you are, your entire being, everything about you, past, present, and future, and He transfers you into His heavenly treasury. You're His treasure. And He moves you into the heavenlies and He tells you, fear not, little flock. It is My pleasure to give you the kingdom. To give you everything. And it can't be touched. It can't be stolen. It can't be taken away from us. He changes our destiny. Look at verse 7. In the ages to come, He will show His immeasurable grace and kindness to us in Christ. What He's saying is that starting now, we start to experience the grace, the mercy, the love, the kindnesses of God now in part. But as the ages unfold, imagine this, folks. It's hard. It's it's almost impossible. But try to imagine as eternity unfolds, every moment of eternity, as it's unfolding, you are seeing glory upon glory in your life and in the life of your Savior that you and He are united in such a way that your life is full not just floating on a cloud plucking a harp. It's much more than that. It is a destiny that is rich and full that we can hardly imagine. No one that I know of kind of summarizes this as well. This new state of affairs. What we were dead Children of wrath, lost, blind, slaves, hopeless, with nothing. And now, who we are now, who God is because of His love. No one summarizes it, I think, like Horatius Bonarn. Every year at this church, I have begged you to read his little book, The Everlasting Righteousness. There just isn't anything like it. I've read it 20 times, but maybe more. And I urge you to read that little book. You can get it online. It's free. PDF. You can get it. Or we have it in the bookstore. Get the book. Read it this year. The Everlasting Righteousness. But Horatius Bonar says this. Listen, it's a little bit long. But let these words just pour over you. They are exquisite. 
to be entitled to use another's name when my own name is worthless, to be allowed to wear another's raiment because my own is torn and filthy, to appear before God in another's person, the person of the beloved Son. This is the summit of all blessing. The sin-bearer and I have exchanged places, names, robes, and persons. I am now represented by Him. He now appears in the presence of God for me. All, listen, all that makes Him precious and dear to the Father has been transferred to me. His excellency and glory are seen as if they were mine. And I receive all the love, the fellowship, and the glory as if I had earned them all. So entirely one am I with Him, with the sin-bearer, that God treats me, listen folks, not merely as if I had not done the evil that I have done, but as if I had done all the good which I have not done, but which the substitute has done for me. In one sense, I am still the poor sinner under wrath. In another, I am altogether righteous and shall be so forever because the perfect one in whose perfection I appear before God. Do you see what Horatius Bonar who's now appealing to Paul, who, or to, to Calvin, who was appealing to Paul. What they're saying. That there is a great exchange, folks, a great exchange over which all of the Scripture is written. And this great exchange over all of which, Paul, all of which Scripture is written, Paul codifies in one sentence. Verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one can boast. Paul takes all of the Old Testament all of the New Testament, all of everything we know about God and ourselves, and he reduces it in his genius, inspired by the Holy Spirit, into just this handful of words, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone has... He's telling you, you can't boast. You didn't do anything to get it, and therefore you cannot lose it. Your life is secure. You can take risks. You can trust Him. You can step out into the, to the stormy water out of the boat. You don't have to be afraid. You can live your life in a way, a fullness, that very few people, folks, on this earth 
are living this kind of life. And the Apostle Paul is holding it out to you and I and telling you, start your 2015, whatever that's going to look like, start your, your new year with this great exchange. You will know then the third thing, your purpose and His. Look at verse 10. We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in Him, in them. I think when we read the words good works, we think more like good deeds. That God has prepared all these good deeds that you're supposed to be doing, like helping uh, old ladies cross the street. You know, busy traffic. Or... Uh, uh, perhaps taking out the, gar- the garbage for your neighbor who's sick and they can't take the garbage. So that's a good deed. We do good deeds and we go and take them. We, so we're looking for good deeds to do. But Paul means something so much more. This in itself, right here, if you will listen, wake up if you can. Wake up. Because this could revolutionize the way you live your life from this day forward. Good deeds... No. Good works. Good works. What he's saying and what I've said and what I think Paul's trying to communicate to us is this. All of your life, if you make this great exchange, all of your life can be a good work. That means that every endeavor of your life, your work, your leisure, your worship, where you live, Randy Pope says, where you live, work, and play. Everywhere that you live your life now can become a good work. Are you a lawyer? That can be a good work. Are you a doctor? A good work. Are you a butcher, a baker, a candlestick maker? All can be a good work. We can start to see our works, all of them, as good works. Our careers, our jobs, our families our life, our love, everything that we do can now be permeated by this great exchange. We are His workmanship. He created you to be who you are and to do what you do well. Not just Christian things, but everything. Everything you do now can take on the character of this new creation. You have been created for this. All your work, all your pains, all your pleasures, they can all be good work in Christ Jesus. God has prepared them. He's not limiting them just to these few, three or four good things, but to everything that you do in faith, trusting Him as a new creature. In Christ. The Anglican Archbishop N.T. Wright says this. I thought it was a wonderful quote from his new book, uh, the simple, Simply the Gospel, I think is the title. Once we understand the original good news, once we understand the Gospel, once we understand the original good news, news about something that has happened in the events concerning Jesus, we also understand that the good news about the future cannot be about leaving the earth and going to heaven. It must 
have something to do. Listen, folks. It must have something to do with heaven and earth coming together. Something to do with creation itself being renewed and restored. Do you see it? This great exchange, life for death, new creation, so that you can indeed, wherever you live, work, and play, your entire life can become transformational as you step out into the world in everything you do, from the mundane to to the high and the mighty, whatever it is that you do. All of that can become transformational, not only in your life, but in the world around us. Our job, our commission here on the earth is to change everything around us. To make the world... It's not an understatement. To turn the world into the Garden of Eden. A place where people want to live. And they will clamor to come to people like that. People that have that kind of hope and that kind of vision for the neighborhoods, for the cities we live in. What would El Paso look like if just our small church, in just our relatively small spheres of influence, what if we took this seriously and went out into the new year thinking, everything I do where I live, work, and play, I'm going to transform the world around me by taking the Gospel there. How do you do that? I think the only way that we can do it, folks, is when we see, really honestly see what the Gospel is. It's someone who had life, real life, and gave it up so that we could live. Someone who the wrath of God was as far away from Jesus Christ as it can be from anything. Jesus deserved nothing but praise and honor and glory. And when He stepped into the Garden of Gethsemane before His death, the heavens should have opened up and a choir of angels should have started singing His praises. And the only thing He saw when He stepped into the Garden of of Gethsemane was a pit that opened up into hell itself and the grave standing before Him and utter forsakenness. The one that should have received praises and glory got wrath so that you and I would never have to have wrath. The one who should have had life gave His life. The one who should have escaped the grave took the grave so that you and I could exchange places with Him and have true life. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. That is the great exchange. We're crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, we live not us, but Christ lives in us. And the life that we now live, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave Himself for us. Do you see that? That will transform you. Will you do it? Will you exchange this day your rags for His riches? I pray you'll do that. And let this year be a turning point in your life for the glory of God. Let's pray.
Father, um, we know that we were dead in our sins and trespasses, that we were children of wrath, but in Your great mercy and love for us, You reached down into the mess of our lives and intervened by grace. By grace, You've rescued us. And I pray, Father, that that will transform our hearts in such a way when we see that exchange that we will be new people, new men and women, new boys and girls, and that we will look around us and see a a large, beautiful, glorious world that needs transformation. And that in our small ways, some small, some greater, that You will help us to transform the face of this earth and to prepare, to prepare the garden for Your great coming. Father, help us to do that, I pray. Help us to do it. In the name of Your Son, Jesus, and for His glory. Amen.